Chapter 6 of Charles Simeon by Henley Mole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Growing Influence The storm of opposition and contempt described in the last chapter began to abate within some ten years of the first outburst, though for many a long day afterwards it left its effects in more chronic forms. As late as 1820, James Scholefield, Fellow of Trinity, and a few years later, Greek professor, was Simeon's curate. He lived at Emmanuel House, a picturesque little mansion still standing at the back of Emmanuel College, five minutes' walk from Trinity Church. An old pupil of Scholefield's records thus a recollection of those days. He used to take us with him to dear old Simeon's church, and often, as we have walked with him thither, we heard the coarse abuse he met with from the idle undergraduates who rejoiced in nothing more than hooting at Simeon or his curate. But in many ways the world of Cambridge soon began to find out the character of the maligned and ridiculed preacher, and was compelled to own that at least he was sincere. He proved himself the active, practical philanthropist when, in the close of 1788, England was in great dearth of bread. The poor of the town were provided for by a subscription to which Simeon largely contributed, but he knew the neighbouring villagers intimately, and it occurred to him that they were equally in want, and he offered to undertake the charge of raising and administering relief for them. He took much of the expense and most of the trouble on himself, stirred up the goodwill of others, and every Monday rode out into the country to see that the bakers sold the bread at half price to the poor people. I quote the circular letter which he sent to some principal person in each village of twenty-four in the neighbourhood, enclosing with it a schedule for their answers and signatures. King's College, Cambridge, January 7, 1789. Sirs, it is the wish of many to assist the poor of the adjacent villages, but it cannot be done to any good effect without the aid of some gentleman in each village who will take upon himself to direct and superintend the distribution of the sums that may be given for that purpose. May I be permitted, therefore, to request this favour of you, that you will procure and send me on Sunday a list of those in your parish that require assistance most. Submit that list to the minister on Sunday for his approbation." distribute what shall be given according to that list exert yourself to raise contributions in your own parish and take care that the relief so given shall not diminish the rates by so doing you will oblige gentlemen your most obedient humble servant c simeon this benevolent and self-denying conduct says his old friend mrs elliot and the personal labour and expense he incurred made a great impression on the university and was one of the first things to open their eyes to the real character of the man who had been so much ridiculed and opposed they could not but acknowledge in spite of his eccentricities that some great and noble principle must be at work within him to occasion such conduct he means well at least they said this is not like madness a little earlier in seventeen eighty six he had preached for the first time before the university in great st mary's church it may seem strange that he should have been called there so soon young as he was and so far from popular but the system of choice of preachers at that time was very different from what it is now when more often than not the pulpit is filled by some man of high reputation not resident at cambridge and perhaps not a cambridge man named by a committee of selection and then invited in former days two university sermons were preached each sunday the afternoons were usually allotted by a special arrangement to well-known senior men a month to each simeon was repeatedly chosen for this work in later life but the morning sermons were otherwise provided for 
the colleges, in a certain rotation, named successively a man for a Sunday, and it was not unusual for the man named to procure a substitute for the occasion, who might be much his junior. This first sermon of Simeon's, if I am right, was a morning sermon. Any of my readers who have attended our university church will in some measure realize that scene, but those will do so best to recall what the church was before the great interior alterations made in 1864. It was a magnificent auditorium, though most anomalously arranged from the strict ecclesiastical point of view. The organ, as now, filled the western arch under the tower, and then... As now, the two aisles of the nave were occupied by spacious galleries, which are thronged with tier upon tier of undergraduate hearers when a popular preacher is in the pulpit. A similar deep gallery then projected from the front of the organ loft and opposite to it, filling the chancel arch and almost totally concealing the chancel, towered a gallery still deeper, the place where sat the vice-chancellors, masters of colleges, doctors, and professors. It was known always as the Golgotha, the place of heads, a word from which immemorial use had banished irreverence. Under the galleries sat the congregation from the town, and the central space left in the nave was filled with plain benches, set east and west, where sat the masters of arts. The pulpit, a tall wooden turret, dark and stately, stood at the western end of this space, facing eastward. It was mounted by an inner and unseen staircase, and a sort of mystery attended the preacher's emergence into daylight at the top, a position whence he perfectly commanded the whole assembly. The service was of the simplest. As the bell of St. Mary's ceased to ring and the organ pealed its voluntary, the vice-chancellor and his brother dignitaries appeared on the Golgotha and took their places, while an esquire bedel, with his silver mace, led the preacher to the pulpit. A metrical psalm or hymn was sung. The bidding prayer and the Lord's Prayer were read by the preacher. The sermon was delivered, the grace pronounced, and all was over. Such precisely is still the ritual of that plain but solemn ordinance, save only that the procession which used to mount from an invisible vestry and so issue into the Golgotha now crosses the street from the Senate House and passes up the aisle to the stalls which line the now-open chancel. All is at present much more as it should be as regards the proprieties of church arrangement, but there was a greater human grandeur about the old scene which cannot be recalled without some lingering regrets. Seldom was great St. Mary's fuller than when Simeon preached there, as he did repeatedly, in 1786, 1796, 1810, 1811, 1815, 1823, 1831, and never was the attraction of curiosity stronger than when he ascended that pulpit for the first time. It was Advent Sunday, December 3. Thus does Venn describe the occasion to his son. On Sunday, Senite, our friend Simeon appeared in St. Mary's pulpit, his friends were delighted, his bitterest foes struck dumb and all mistaken in the man. On the Saturday before, Dr. Glynn called on him and desired the favour of his company and to bring his sermon with him, telling him he had a critical and a prejudiced audience to speak to, and he was his friend, believing him to be a good man. Mr. Simeon thankfully accepted the invitation. The doctor heard the sermon, corrected and improved it, and concluded, Now, sir, as I am called out and cannot be at St. Mary's, I am glad I can say I have read the sermon and shall be your advocate wherever I go. There was a very large congregation and great attention, though it is said there were some who came to scrape. Footnote, a once customary interruption at St. Mary's when the sermon did not please by matter, style, or length. End footnote. Pray much that his good may not be evil spoken of. 
A fuller account of that memorable sermon is given by Mr. Carus, as he heard it from his uncle, the Reverend W. Carus Wilson, who was present. The greatest excitement prevailed on this occasion. St. Mary's was crowded with gownsmen, and at first there seemed a disposition to disturb and annoy the preacher, in a manner at that period unhappily not unusual. But scarcely had he proceeded more than a few sentences, when the lucid arrangement of his exordium and his serious and commanding manner impressed the whole assembly with feelings of deep solemnity, and he was heard to the end with the most respectful and riveted attention. The vast congregation departed in a mood very different from that in which it had assembled, and it was evident from the remarks which were overheard at going out, and the subdued tone in which they were made, that many were seriously affected as well as surprised at what they had heard. Of two young men who had come among the scoffers, one was heard to say to the other, "'Well, Simeon is no fool, however.' "'Fool,' replied his companion, "'did you ever hear such a sermon before?' Simeon had been preparing in many ways for this occasion." before honour is humility, and he had been, in John Thornton's words, growing downwards year by year, under the stern discipline of difficulty met in the right way, the way of close and adoring communion with God. His faithful elder friend at Yelling remarks on this again and again in 1785. Our dear friend Simeon came over to see me, very much improved and grown in grace, his very presence a blessing." My fears concerning him greatly abate. He appears indeed to be much more humbled from a deeper knowledge of himself. He is a most affectionate friend and living Christian. Come by Cambridge and pray spend some time with Mr. Simeon. He follows the Lord fully as Caleb did. It does me good to be with him. None can bear and receive profit from reproof like him. About the same time Simeon himself writes to John Thornton, who had written again and evidently had given him some of a friend's faithful words. A thousand thanks to you, dear sir, for many valuable observations in your last letter, especially that which I hope to remember, that ministers, when truly useful and more perfectly instructed in the ways of God, are off their speed and not so full of their success. Alas, alas, how apt are young ministers, I speak feelingly, to be talking of that great letter I. It would be easier to erase that letter from all the books in the kingdom than to hide it for one hour from the eyes of a vain person." Another observation in a former letter of yours has not escaped my remembrance. The three lessons which a minister has to learn. One, humility. Two, humility. Three, humility. How long are we learning the true nature of Christianity? A quiet, sober, diligent application of one's mind to one's particular calling in life and a watchfulness over the evils of the heart seem very poor attainments to a young Christian. We must be everywhere and everything or else we are nothing in his esteem. Your most obliged, most honoured, and most affectionate servant. In his pocket book in 1787, he had written twice over, on separate pages in large letters, Talk not about myself, speak evil of no man. Behind all that was busy and public in his life, he had striven from the first to labour in secret prayer. An old and intimate friend, the Reverend R. Houseman, who had known him from 1783 onwards and looked on Simeon as his own first guide to Christ, has lifted the veil for a moment from those labours. Houseman, though a Johnian, was for some reason invited by Simeon to share for a while his rooms in King's, and nearly sixty years later, when Simeon had gone to his rest, he gave his recollections of that time to Mr. Carus. Never did I see such consistency and reality of devotion, such warmth of piety, such zeal and love. I owe that great and holy man a debt which cannot be cancelled. 
while Houseman was in King's, Simeon invariably arose every morning, though it was the winter season at four o'clock, and after lighting his fire he devoted the first four hours of the day to private prayer and the devotional study of the scriptures. He would then ring his bell and, calling in his friend with his servant, engage with them in what he termed his family prayer. Here was the secret of his great grace and spiritual strength. Deriving instruction from such a source, and seeking it with such diligence, he was comforted in all his trials and prepared for every duty. This early rising did not come easily to him, it was a habit resolutely fought for and acquired. Finding himself too fond of his bed, he had resolved to pay a fine for every offence, giving a half-crown to his servant. One morning, as he lay warm and comfortable, he caught himself reasoning that the good woman was poor, and that the half-crown would be useful to her. But that practical fallacy was not to be tolerated. If he rose late again, he would walk down to the came and throw a guinea into the water. And so he did, though not without a great struggle, for guineas were not abundant in his purse. And also he had learnt to look on them as his lord's money. But for his lord's sake the coin was cast in, and there it lies yet, no doubt, in the river's keeping. Simeon never transgressed in that way again. Thus he prayed, and thus he preached. Very early also he had begun to teach in a more private way, inviting to his rooms the intending clergyman among his undergraduate friends, and giving them systematic instruction. By 1792 these meetings were in full working order. They are thus described by one who was afterwards his dear friend and faithful curate, and whom he gave up at length to India, Thomas Thomason of Magdalen. Mr. Simeon watches over us as a shepherd over his sheep. He takes delight in instructing us and has us continually at his rooms. He has invited me to his Sunday evening lectures. This I consider one of the greatest advantages I ever received. The subject of his lectures is natural and revealed religion. These subjects he studies with much pains, reads the fruit of his labours to us, and explains it. We write after him. After labouring and labouring for his young men that his lectures may be as profitable as possible, he then kneels down and thanks God that he makes him in any degree useful to his dear, dear young servants. Perhaps the most serviceable of all these chamber labours was the sermon class. This work he began before 1794, and it was suggested by his own experience. In those days of difficulty at Trinity Church, when the Sunday afternoon was occupied by the lecturer, and a Sunday evening service was made impossible by the churchwardens, and when a weekday evening service was still too bold a challenge to opposition, he used to ride out to help his few neighbouring friends, Venn at Yelling, Berridge at Everton, Hicks at Wrestlingworth, with some others, welcomed him, and he took them in turn, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of each week. In these village churches he preached without book, and usually on the text he had handled in Cambridge on the Sunday morning. These repeated expositions led him to try to make each more clear and more interesting than the last, and as with Simeon every purpose issued in conscientious work, he studied hard, quite without help, to arrive at definite principles in the matter. With all his energy he set himself to observe and to discover, and his masterly common sense arrived at maxims and results most true and effective, and which, at the time, were very nearly original. He saw that the minister of the word must not becloud his text or wander at will from it, but let it speak. And he saw that the sermon must have a certain unity of theme and message, and that it must be intelligible, and that it must be interesting. 
the great nonconformist preacher of our time, Mr. Spurgeon, certainly a master of his art, has said that the pastor who would keep his church full must first preach the gospel, and then preach it with three adverbs in his mind, earnestly, interestingly, fully. In substance, this was Simeon's prescription also, and most certainly his practice. In the course of these studies how to preach, not brilliantly but usefully, he met with a book which greatly developed his efforts and set him definitely to work as a teacher of preachers. It was Jean-Claude's essay on the composition of a sermon. Claude, 1619-1687, was one of the ablest of the great Huguenot divines of the 17th century and for many years chief minister at Charnerton, the Huguenot Canterbury, where he proved himself Bosuit's worthy controversial rival. At the revocation of the edict, 1685, the great temple at Charenton was at once pulled down and the pastor exiled from France, took refuge with William of Orange and laboured at the Hague for the rest of his life. Claude had stated and explained, with French neatness and precision, his rules for a successful preparation for the pulpit, and his book had been translated by the Cambridge Baptist minister Robert Robinson, mentioned above. Simeon read the translated essay and found with surprise that all the chief rules which Claude prescribes had not only been laid down by himself but practised for some years. Seeing his own methods, the methods of nature as he held them to be, thus reduced to a convenient system, he resolved to begin to teach them. He abridged the essay in manuscript, with occasional alterations and additions, and then set to work with a few pupils for the pulpit, taking the essay as his textbook. His purpose was to make his younger friends intelligent and intelligible preachers, who knew both what they meant to say and how to say it, so as to arrest and reward attention, reminding them at every turn that the pastoral sermon is not to be either a treatise out of place or an oration developed from the mere starting point of a text, but a setting forth of God's word by a commissioned messenger in an assembly of living men. He strove accordingly to train his disciples in the right sort of preparation and also in the most effective delivery, to insist upon care in exposition, clearness of arrangement and directness of appeal. As to the actual utterance, he advised them to prepare their material fully and carefully, but to leave the wording to the moment of delivery. By any and every means they were to train themselves to be preachers, whose sermons should be always full of matter, formed so as to aid attention and memory, and delivered with a manner perfectly natural. It is not easy at the present day to realize the independence and almost originality of such a program, deliberately laid down by an English teacher. The traditions of English preaching had long been curiously artificial. The sermon almost always was either read from the manuscript or mandated, committed to memory and then recited. Footnote. This latter method was enjoined upon university preachers as an alternative to extempore delivery by the authority of King Charles II. The following letter, formally embodied in the Cambridge Statute Book, is interesting. Mr. Vice-Chancellor and Gentlemen, whereas His Majesty is informed that the practice of reading sermons is generally taken up by the preachers before the university, and therefore sometimes continued even before himself, His Majesty has commanded me to signify to you his pleasure that the said practice, which took beginning with the disorders of the late times, be wholly laid aside, and that the aforesaid preachers deliver their sermons both in Latin and English by memory or without book, as being a way of preaching which His Majesty judges most agreeable to the use of all foreign churches, to the custom of the university heretofore, and the nature and intentment of that holy exercise. 
and that His Majesty's commands in the premises may be duly regarded and observed. His farther pleasure is that the names of all such ecclesiastical persons as shall continue the present supine and slothful way of preaching be from time to time signified unto me by the Vice-Chancellor, for the time being upon pain of His Majesty's displeasure. Mr. Vice-Chancellor and Gentleman, your loving friend and Chancellor, Monmouth, Newmarket, October 8, 1674. End footnote. There was a pulpit manner, a pulpit voice, often quite different from the man's voice in common life. It had come to be thought that a natural and manifest expression of earnestness was in place only in the unlicensed meeting or in the fields. The church would be almost slighted if the preacher spoke precisely as he felt and in words direct from the heart. Simeon's practice and his teaching contradicted all these traditions, and his diligent inculcation of the right method, or at least of the right aim, working outward from a great centre of training for the English pastorate, had a powerful influence in the right direction. Some of his precepts for the preacher must be quoted. He insisted much on the primary requisite, audibility, and on the surest means to it, articulation. Bite your words, he used to say, warning his scholars of the mistake of slurring consonants and final syllables. Avoid a continuous solemnity. It should be as music and not like a funeral procession. Too great familiarity does not become the pulpit, but a monotonous, isynchronous solemnity is even worse. Seek to speak always in your natural voice. You are generally told to speak up. I say rather, speak down. It is by the strength, not by the elevation of your voice, that you are to be heard. Speak exactly as you would if you were conversing with an aged and pious superior. This will keep you from undue formality and from improper familiarity. But the whole state of your own soul before God must be the first point to be considered, for if you yourself are not in a truly spiritual frame of mind, and actually living upon the truths which you preach or read to others, you will officiate to very little purpose. In the intense desire to reach the soul and will, he was justly impatient of mere decorations of style. Poetry is beautiful in itself, he says to a friend who had been consulting him, but if you will come from the Mount of God, you will find prose better suited for telling men about their golden calf. All needless circumlocution, and indeed all the devices of a conventional rhetoric, he despised and discouraged. At one of his Friday sermon parties, where the men who came read each his sketch or outline aloud, one unfortunate person produced the sentence, Amidst the tumult of Israel, the son of Amram stood unmoved. The son of Amram, who was he? I meant Moses. Then why not say Moses? What ordinary congregation carries in their memories genealogies ready for use? Simeon's labour in connection with Claude's essay was afterwards greatly developed. His works, as they were published in 1832, fill 21 large octavo volumes, and the title page reads Hori Homiletici, or Discourses, principally in the form of skeletons, now first digested into one continued series, and forming a commentary upon every book of the Old and New Testament, to which is annexed an improved edition of a translation of Claude's essay on the composition of a sermon. It was the literary achievement of his life, and no unworthy one. These volumes, now long out of print, contain many discourses fully written, among them the several sets of university sermons, but the large majority of the more than 2,000 compositions are praises of parochial sermons, well-ordered outlines of exposition, arranged according to the books of the Holy Scriptures. 
The reader, as the author warns him, will look there in vain for minute criticism or for remote speculation, but he will seldom fail to gather excellent suggestions how to explain and arrange, and how to carry messages home from the word of God to the life of man. The term skeleton was certainly unfortunate, as we saw Simeon's despisers made merry over it, but the summaries so named were no pieces of lifeless mechanism, as their author planned them and as he taught others how to use them. They were the bone systems of sermons which he himself made to live and speak and work, and he did his utmost to teach his young men how to do the same. I reserve for another chapter some further account of Simeon as a preacher and also as a theologian and the conversation parties for which his rooms were famous belong to a later time than the beginnings of his instruction classes for the pulpit. End of chapter 6